Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Liam Bettsworth from Amplify. Hey, man. Hey, thanks for inviting me along. My name is Liam Bettsworth and I'm the CTO at Amplify. Uh, I started working at Amplify about four years ago now, uh, which is probably around the time that I was introduced to serverless. And uh, to be honest, uh, nothing's ever been the same since. So uh, I guess uh, we kind of crossed paths uh, a while back at the serverless days Cardiff, even though I don't think we actually met in person, but I do remember walking past your office and uh, Matt Lewis from DVLA was telling me about some of the things you guys were doing. Can you maybe start by just telling the audience uh, who is Amplify and uh, what you guys do there? I guess, unfortunately, given the space we're in, when you say Amplify, people probably think about AWS Amplify, but... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah, there there has been some confusion there first, but I just want to say that we got here first, and and it is a very slightly different spelling, but yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, Amplify. I guess I'd describe us as probably an, an AI business intelligence company. What we're trying to do is we're trying to derive insights from unstructured data. Um, so you can imagine that we're ingesting, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of documents. And then what we're trying to do with that data is that we're trying to uh, basically uh, pick out the, the kind of trends, you know, to try to understand some early warning signals and some of the disruption, um, allowing our customers to do some kind of due diligence, you know, any of these kind of business intelligence tasks that you might want to do um, with big data. That That's what we're facilitating. So is it similar to a lot of the online analytics uh, platforms, things like Google Analytics or something like that? Not exactly. Uh, So whereas Google Analytics and a a lot of the other online platforms are very much focused on, uh, let's say, quantitative sort of results and, you know, measuring metrics of of usage and things, uh, we're very much focused on um, harvesting data from the Internet and not just from the Internet, but also from private and kind of premium sources that people pay for. So we will then ingest that content and uh, analyze it through our machine learning pipeline, trying to make sense of it. Okay, so I mean, for for me, it's kind of a bit difficult to sort of wrap my head around exactly what does that mean because uh, when I think about online analytics and machine learning, a lot of it goes to like you know e-commerce, uh, what people are buying, which products are selling well, and uh, you know how your ads are performing, things like that. Do you have some use cases that you can help me sort of solidify my understanding of what you guys do? Yes, absolutely. So. Uh, probably one of the simpler use cases that, that I could provide um, is something that we facilitate. So, for example, we may have a customer and, for example, they might be a, a bank or a financial institution or may, maybe somebody who's lending money. OK, and so they need to do due diligence on their on their own customers. So they need to understand exactly who they're lending money to. So. Uh, the bank or the the financial institution may have a particular policy that they uh, that they don't lend money to people who are involved in certain nefarious activities that they um, that they uh, don't believe in. So uh, what they can do with our software is um, they can search that customer, you know, that company within our platform, and then they can see essentially everything that that customer or company is involved in. Uh, so, for example, if they did not lend money to a particular uh, companies who are involved in uh, perhaps gambling or um, the adult industry or that kind of stuff you know that is something that they could determine from our platform and so compared to uh, compared to standard data sources or standard databases where a human had to enter that and a human had to say that this company is involved in gambling or this company is involved in the adult industry um, our technology was actually able to determine that from open source data so from from reading the web uh, we, we were able to make that decision 
Okay, so I think uh, that starts to make a, little, a lot more sense to me now. I guess uh, straight away I'm thinking about in terms of the challenges you guys must be facing, in terms of ingesting data from all over the place. Uh, like I said, the unstructured data and uh, trying to make sense of them and also just allocate the right data attributes or records to the right people. Uh, you know, people you know, got similar names or the same name, but it's actually a different person, that sort of thing. How do you guys uh, go about solving that? And also, I guess, in terms of the volume of data you're talking about can be quite significant as well. So, yeah, as you said, right, this is a real challenging area. And I guess this is why we thrive in this area, uh, that there aren't very many players here. Um, it's cost inhibitive um, to, to ingest all of the data. I don't think anybody can possibly ingest all of the data. So we're very selective in what we do ingest and we do try and ingest the, the highest quality content that we can. Um, and you know, probably the most trustworthy content as fake news you know, is a massive thing right now as well. So yeah, ingesting very high quality kind of gold standard content is especially important. The, then the other areas you were talking about, of course, yeah, um, how do we actually determine that a sentence has a, a person or a location um, or, or an organization within a sentence? Uh, that task is actually called named entity recognition. So being able to you know tokenize a sentence and say, yes, there are people, locations uh, or organizations in this sentence. And then, the, well, the, the second part of that then is, well, now that we've determined that there are people or locations or organizations in that sentence, how do we tie that to a world, a real world entity? And then, so that is the problem then of uh, disambiguation or, or linking. Um, yeah, I mean, th these are all very kind of novel problems. They've not been 100% solved. And I, I guess that, that's, that's why there's lots of room really to still innovate in this area. Okay, so I'm actually quite interested to how you, how, what your architecture looks like for this particular problem. Uh, because it sounds like you need to some, have some kind of NLP uh, service uh, that takes a sentence and tokenizes it so that you can figure out uh, which uh, word is the location, all of that, and then runs through some other uh, intelligence uh, service. Maybe it sounds like something that's maybe proprietary. You know, you've got your custom machine learning models that, that can do the, uh, that can disambiguous uh, the data. Uh, can, can you maybe talk us through what your architecture looks like from really high level? The architecture itself, um, it's very varied across the platform. Um, of course, right, there's a huge amount of capability here. When people usually talk about you know, front-end and back-end developers, you know, perhaps talking about API development and front-end development, our back-end goes very, very deep with the machine learning. And so throughout that entire stack, you, we're not just um, we're not just using serverless here. You know, we're, we're using server. You, you may remember, actually, I gave a talk in 2018, I think, in serverless days. And probably quite contentious for serverless days. <laughs> the name of my talk was server or serverless, right? And um, it, the answer was a bit of a cop-out in that, to be honest, I don't think you can use serverless for everything. So, so we don't use serverless for everything. We do use server for some tasks. Probably one of the more interesting parts of the architecture that I can talk about is around actually our machine learning pipeline. You know, how, how do we actually uh, go from in, ingesting the data and uh, trying to produce a useful insight out the other side. So yeah, we have experimented with a few different approaches here. So uh, one of the first approaches that we really experimented with was batch processing in that we'd get a whole bunch of documents. We'd try and process them through the pipeline at the same time, um, running on uh, S3 or uh, sorry, on um, e running on EC2 um, or running on SageMaker. And uh, 
Yeah, so what we'd get then is basically we'd get a massive backlog of documents, put them through the pipeline, and then they'd come out sometime later, maybe minutes or maybe hours later. And whilst that was good for a proof of concept, uh, one of the problems that we came up against was that um, there was no real immediacy there in that if I want to process one document through the pipeline, I have to wait for this whole pipeline to spin up, to process the documents, to shut down, for it to become available. You know, there's no real room here for, for bursting or fluctuation in uh, traffic. So, you know, we have to start looking at some other alternatives here. You know, how, how can we how can we go from processing uh, one document to 10 documents to 100,000 documents to a million documents and then back down to zero? Uh, of course, you don't want that infrastructure running all the time. And that's the reason why we chose batch processing to begin with. Um, but, you know, th thinking of serverless, okay, well, how could we solve this with serverless? Serverless is perfect for these kinds of use cases where you know, you've know you got this bursty kind of activity um, going from zero to 100. And so one of the early things that we experimented with in this area, uh, probably around June 2020, was when AWS released EFS for Lambda. And we thought, actually, th this is great. Because, okay, just, just to give you some background, up until then, it's not possible to deploy anything to Lambda that is more than 250 megabytes. And that's a massive problem with serverless. Like, how can you get these machine learning models in, into Lambda? So to give you an example, you know, a common library that you might use for machine learning purposes, PyTorch, is at least 500 megabytes. And so if you can only put 250 megabytes in a Lambda, then this is a big problem. So yeah, with the announcement of EFS, then we realized, okay, great, you know, we can uh, strap some volumes, uh, some elastic file storage to our Lambda, and actually we can load in our models in runtime, uh, at runtime. And so as an initial proof of concept for using um, serverless and Lambdas for machine learning for our pipeline, it was fairly successful, actually. You know, we were able to burst from, you know, one document to hundreds of documents to thousands of documents very quickly and then scale back down. But what we quickly realized was that with EFS, you get burst credits. And uh, we were running out of credits very quickly. And there wasn't really any provision from AWS to, to say, you know, this is our particular use case. We need more credits. We need to scale up and down EFS much quicker. Um, I think AWS came back to us and they said... Um, Probably the best thing that you can do here is that if if you have um, if you have larger volumes, then you'll get more burst credits. So actually, it sounds really stupid, but uh, what we ended up doing is we ended up filling these volumes with just white noise, really, just a, a whole bunch of noise, you know, tens or hundreds of gigabytes of noise, just so that we would get more burst credits. wasn't a great solution, but again, it got us a little bit further. And so around that point in time, I would say maybe August, September, uh, 2020. We've um, partnered with AWS and um, sometimes we get access to some kind of early beta programs. And uh, so AWS reached out to us, understanding our use case, and they said, look, we've got this really cool thing in the pipeline and uh, would you guys be interested in trying it? So, um, of course, the, the thing that they ended up releasing at reInvent was a Lambda with containers. And that specific technology for our pipeline is an absolute game changer. So now... Yeah, we, we've gone from originally batch processing, which we had to wait for ages for it to kind of spin up and spin down, uh, to EFS, which uh, we were running our burst credits, to now actually Lambda containers, where we could have um, you know, 10, 10 gigabyte models uh, deployed in a container in Lambda and get all the benefits of Lambda uh, scaling. So probably, I mean, that, that's definitely one of the core parts of our architecture that we're using, which is serverless right now, and that 
as I've said, you know, over the last few months, that's been an absolute game changer for us. Yeah, it's funny uh, you talk about uh, the 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 workaround you have to do for uh, EFS. I guess uh, also worth at this point uh, for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with uh, uh, the feature that Liam just discussed. Uh, you can nowadays use uh, uh, containers as a packaging format for Lambda functions. There's the storage units that you get is 10 gig, but it's read only. You can't actually write to the volume. Whereas with EFS, it's a read and write. But it's um, like Liam said, that's a, a super limit. <laughs> It's based on based on the uh, super units you collect over time, and how much you actually use, and how much unit you get uh, is based on the size of your volume. I guess you could also use uh, provisioned uh, throughput, but that's a lot more expensive depending on the amount of throughput you need, and you, you know, you're back to uh, paying for uptime for the amount of uh, throughput you need, even though you may not need them all the time. So that's not exactly um, guess a very serverless way of doing things. <laughs> Uh, but I guess with containers, uh, one thing uh, a lot of people has uh, asked me about, is, uh, or at least uh, a lot of confusion I've heard, is that oh, you can run containers in the Lambda function, uh, which is not exactly the case. It's you know you're not really running a container service, a long-running service per se, but you're using container as a packaging format for your application, which lets you push in all your 10 gig machine learning models, which uh, for TensorFlow and tools like that, which is uh, you know quite easily a couple of gig uh, <laughs> in size. Uh, one thing I do want to ask about your experience using containers with Lambda is that um, they've done this really clever thing with uh, the container for Lambda support that they're using this thing called a sparse file system so that uh, you don't have this massive penalty for uh, running containers using a container as uh, as packaging format for Lambda in terms of cold start time. However, uh, the sparse file system try to prioritize the bits you actually need from your function so that uh, it's always there when your function cold starts. But anything else is have to be, you know, it have to be read remotely. It's, it's still going to be a network file system uh, that you have to fetch on demand. So if you need to actually run something that is going to use up, say, you know, 10 gig of your you know, file storage because you're loading a machine learning model, that can be quite significant in terms of uh, latency, uh, at least you know, whenever you need that. So a few people I've spoken with um, have said that that has, that has taken a lot longer to load even compared to EFS. Has that been your experience as well that you load a container image with two, you know, two three gig and then if you, because you need to run the machine learning model, you actually need to load the whole thing. So it adds a lot of time to your code starts. Is that something that you guys have noticed? Yeah, that's certainly something that we've noticed. I think, um, you know, in, in a blog post that we released recently with AWS, I think we've been witnessing cold start times, maybe 20 to 30 seconds for, for loading in some of these models. Now, to be honest, because this is running uh, in the background as a process and it's not um, always directly visible on the front end, it's not such an issue for us. We're willing to, to wait that 20 or 30 seconds uh, scale up time. But yeah, it's certainly something that we've seen as well, yeah. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, and I guess that's kind of by design that, uh, you know, you could have a really large container image, but most of the time you don't actually need most of it. So they kind of prioritize that use case and make sure that if people are using uh, containers to ship their applications so that, you know, you're serving some web, web traffic, then the, you know, all that additional files you don't need, uh, you can just sit on a container image, but that's not going to impact your performance. But in your case, you actually need to load all of them. But luckily for you, it's, it's, it's not user-facing latency, so it doesn't really matter if it takes five milliseconds or 100 milliseconds, or even in this case, uh, 20 to 30 seconds. Um, so in that case, uh, are you 
that's the bit where you're using the, the machine learning model that you've already built to serve uh, uh, traffics to, uh, to answer questions as part of your batch process. What about in terms of the data ingestion side of things? I imagine you're probably using something like Kinesis or something like that to ingest the data and then push it through some kind of pipeline that feeds your machine learning model. So we do have a number of different pipelines and a number of different ways in which we're ingesting different types of data. It depends entirely on whether it's um, internal kind of private data that we need access to or whether we're scraping from the web. Um, generally, um, it's a fairly simple approach, actually, but the, the way that we're generally queuing things right now is just using SQS. Um, or rather, you know, as we're indexing and pulling documents in, we're saving them to S3 and then... Um, saving a pointer, I guess you could call it, in uh, SQS and, and pulling that out. Right, I see. So in terms of ingestion, how much like volume are we talking about here? Because you said you're quite selective about uh, where you get the data from. Um, so I guess that's going to help you reduce the amount of traffic. Because SQS and, uh, you know, um, at scale is not cheap. <laughs> a lot of people use uh, Kinesis and things like that instead of SQS or SNS because of the fact that at scale, they're significantly cheaper compared to SQS. Is that something that you can share in terms of like, you know, are we talking about you know, thousands of records per day or is it per second? So the traffic is very bursty. Um, basically, we're trying to pull in content on demand as the user sees that there is an area of interest, perhaps that we don't have enough content for, or, or perhaps there is more content that we could find in that area. So to give you an example of yeah, the, the kinds of um, the amount of data that we're pulling in, at any particular time, we may go from zero to having to pull in 10,000 or 100,000 documents within, uh, within perhaps 10 or 15 minutes. Now that that does scale up much higher than that, um, you know, we've we've obviously stress tested this tech and we've seen how far we can push it with Lambda, and it, it's actually um, it's really interesting, you know, when when you see, um, I guess this is when you really see the horizontal scalability and the power of Lambda. Yeah, when we've been running this with, let's say, seventy million documents in one day, um, I think that's probably the limit we've hit so far, and it's just incredible seeing you know thousands of Lambdas running concurrently. Um, in in your dashboard and watching things you know move through the pipeline, but yeah, that that's the kind of um, that's the kind of quota we're talking about here. So, somewhere between hundreds of thousands and millions of documents a day. Okay, very cool, very cool. Yeah, I've had uh, quite a few people use uh, Lambda's uh, horizontal scalability in this kind of similar use cases, where essentially you know you've got uh, you got this. Uh, uh, almost supercomputer on demand where you can get up to what six cores uh, per instance uh, when you use a 10 gig function and you can have a, a thousand of them well you can scale to from zero to three thousand uh, of these things uh, in, in one go so in terms of burst traffic it's uh, actually super good for these kind of use cases uh, yeah I was just going to say yeah I mean so the exact use case that we're using these for as well right is machine learning inference and um if you're running inference over one document or a very small number of sentences, it's actually not a very intense process. It's it's the perfect kind of process that yeah you could just dedicate one CPU to, and then yeah you know all of a sudden you have five thousand CPUs or ten thousand CPUs that you can scale to. So yeah, it's almost perfect for our use case for the for the inference. Yeah. 
And what about in terms of uh, you know some of the challenges that you come across with Lambda? I guess you talked about some of them already in terms of the EFS support, or um, and and now with uh, with the container support, uh, it's the it's a it's a cold start time. But I guess in your case, it's not really an issue. Is there any other issues that you guys run across, uh, sort of come across as you, you know start to adopt more and more serverless technologies? Yeah, so we we use serverless very heavily in our APIs as well. Um, we always have a number of reasons for it really, but again, it nearly always comes down to cost and just um, kind of flexible scalability works really well for us. It's also been really useful for us in terms of um, being able to spin up multiple environments very quickly or you know, being able to build branches and test individual branches without the complexity of um, well, something more complex. Uh, but yeah, other problems we've had. So actually, uh, th- this was the subject of my talk two years ago, which I'm glad to say that AWS um, have solved since then. And I know you've um, spent some time or some early work on this as well, Jan, in terms of uh, the cold starts that used to plague Lambda and API Gateway, especially if you had your Lambda within a VPC as well, which is exactly what we were doing, pro- you know. Um, hindsight now, but yeah, um, we were experiencing cold starts at the time of maybe 16 seconds or something, you know, sometimes we were using C sharp in, in a VPC. Uh, I'm glad to say now that those problems have gone. So um, that was definitely one of the early challenges that we had. And the, just to clarify, the reason why we had our lambdas within a VPC is because of the way that we were interacting with our data store. So we were using ES and the, the way that, oh, sorry, Elasticsearch. And um, at the time, the way in which we were securing Elasticsearch was within a VPC. So, that, I mean, the lambdas had to exist within VPC to communicate with that without having some really complex kind of proxy. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was definitely one of the early challenges that we had. But um, obviously, AWS have now solved that through, um, you know, uh, how, how did AWS solve that? They had, um, they've attached the NAT gateway to, um, I forget exactly how they solved that. No, yeah, go on. Um, so what they did was uh, they actually uh, replaced the whole networking layer uh, when they introduced the Firecracker. So this uh, they replaced the underlying, I guess, virtualization technology they they were using uh, with Firecracker. They were able to sort of rewrite the whole networking layer. Uh, what they do is uh, instead of uh, creating the ENIs on demand as when a new instance of your function is running and needs it, uh, it's created uh, ahead of time on deployment time so that uh, before your function is actually put into active service, uh, uh, they created ENI and uh, somehow they managed to create the ENI based on the unique combination of the network configurations. So if you've got you know, 100 functions all have the same VPC, security groups and all of that configuration, then the they just use the same ENI. Um, I guess they maybe improve the ENI's efficiency as well so that they don't need many ENI's to support the throughput. Um, and instead, uh, one ENI can support uh, all these different functions or all these concurrent executions. Um, there's still sometimes when you may see cold start uh, related to VPCs and ENI. Uh, if you have uh, functions that are configured with VPC, but then the, you know, for a very long time, there's just no traffic. So the ENI that was provisioned eventually gets garbage collected. So the next time uh, one of these functions gets invoked and needs a ENI, then it still gets created on demand. But by and large, uh, you shouldn't see them anymore because they're provisioned ahead of time which means uh, when you have VPC functions, deployment is going to take a bit longer, uh, but at least uh, you know, that's your time and not all of your customers' time. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, it's all coming back to me now, that kind of nightmarish scenario. But yeah, exactly, the, creating the ENIs was the um, the part that was taking the time, yeah. So of course, yeah, there's a shared ENI now. Um, but yeah, so other kind of challenges that we've had with Lambda, 
it's I find that it's very easy actually the, the technology moves so fast and there are so many new developments and sometimes it's really hard to know whether you've made the right choice or not you know because you want to be an early adopter and you want to to try out the latest technology you know like the lambda containers um, but sometimes if it's a very early kind of um, access technology and you you're never quite sure really whether you've made the right decision. And I guess only time will tell whether you've made the right decision or not. You may have to go back and perhaps refactor your architecture. Especially with uh, Lambda nowadays, uh, they're getting more and more features and uh, certainly not every feature is uh, applicable or you know, useful for everybody. And uh, you can you can end up with something that's really complicated. You know, you've got functions that can use the uh, container imaging, you can use the extensions, you can use the Lambda layers. Uh, you know, or, or a combination of the, all these different features, but then most of the time you probably don't need them, right? Uh, and I think certainly for most use cases, uh, you know, you can just keep it simple and use. Uh... Oh, hello! <laughs> Sorry, my dog just jumped on the call. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've got a cat, but she's just sleeping. She's uh, not even paying any attention to me whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was going to say actually. Uh, so a, f a final thing that uh, you know, this is always on my mind actually with serverless is that you're very susceptible to denial of wallet kind of attacks, and that, that you know that's not to say that anybody is um, you know, aiming any attacks at us. But let's say for instance, when you're scaling from zero to a hundred very quickly, and you could be running at a hundred for a very long time, it's very easy to go from spending no money to spending you know tens of thousands of dollars in just no time at all. So it's always something in the back of our minds, you know have making sure that we've got the right kind of alerts and alarms set up to make sure that this doesn't happen to us, yeah. Um, I don't really remember reading that blog post from, uh, I think, Jack Ellis uh, from um, uh, Fathom. They also do, they also build some kind of, uh, I guess, more like a Google Analytics thing, uh, but using entirely service technologies. And they had uh, some really interesting case where a competitor, I think, was, uh, or someone was uh, doing denial service attacks against them. And uh, they were running into exactly the problem you're talking about. And uh, they did lots of work with uh, AWS, uh, with the Shield Advanced team to put in much more stringent processes in place so that uh, they identified those uh, bad actors quickly and then blocked them on the RAF uh, and, uh, and, and rejecting traffic and all these things uh, just to protect themselves uh, against uh, future attacks. Um, but it's, it was a really interesting blog post. I'm going to put in the in the show notes uh, so that other people can read about it as well. Um, but yeah, but definitely that's uh, something that uh, you got to worry about. Like, but I guess it's also the same problem that existed in other applications that you know now service attacks is always going to be something you got to worry about. You know, you may not be paying for the individual lambda invocations, but you still be paying for uptime for EC2 instances and other things like that. Um, what about in terms of uh, just adoption? Uh, obviously, as an early adopter, you ran through some of the early pain points of using Lambda and you know, VPC and all that. What about in terms of uh, staffing and uh, uh, I guess training? Obviously, being a you know, very different way of doing things, did you find it harder to hire people with the right skill set? And uh, what about you know trying to teach the the people you already have how to make the best use of Lambda and other services? Yeah. I mean, as an early, uh, sorry, as an early stage or kind of um, sort of startup scaler uh, working in an interesting area of uh, machine learning with natural language processing, we haven't really struggled to attract a talent who are, are interested in uh, working, I guess, with novel technologies or in new areas, that kind of stuff. So a lot of the kind of people that we're attracting are very keen, very interested to, to try out new technologies. So certain really hasn't been any barrier to adoption for us in that you know people are more than happy to use the technology they, they want to come and work for us to, to work with this technology 
Um, in terms of uh, training and onboarding and things, uh, we're very lucky at Amplify in that we have a really capable architecture and uh, DevOps team. Uh, and again, you know, they're, they're certainly advocates for serverless. It really helps having that in-house expertise and kind of knowledge. Yeah, p- pushing for these kinds of ways of working. Okay, that's actually quite interesting uh, thing. I want to maybe ask you a little bit more about that, your, your team structure. Um, so you said you've got a DevOps, uh, I guess, infrastructure team. Um, how do you, I guess, in this case, um, separate different responsibilities? Uh, do you have uh, feature teams that only develop the Lambda functions themselves uh, and then have some other teams that provision other things like API Gateway and such like that? Or do you have uh, your development teams uh, own almost everything and be autonomous, but have the DevOps teams that kind of do some kind of a support, putting the tooling around it, monitoring, all of that? So the way that we're set up within the engineering team is that... Uh, we have leads of individual functions, so we have a you know front end, back end, uh, machine learning, architecture, DevOps uh, teams uh, within the engineering team. And it, although they exist as individual functions within engineering, uh, we do then have cross-functional development teams. Uh, so let's say, for instance, architecture and DevOps act as floating resources that can be used amongst the individual kind of platforms or projects that we have going on. And uh, yeah, I, to be honest, it, it's fairly autonomous. Um, anyone is allowed to, to do anything, uh, but I guess with, with the oversight of DevOps and uh, architecture, then they're, they're sort of, you know, checking in on pull requests and things or checking in on, on the designs of uh, systems before they go to production just to make sure that they do, you know, use best practices. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about in terms of uh, things that you hope AWS would do better? Do you have any sort of uh, uh, AWS wish list items that you would like to share? Yeah, there's two f- two for me, I think. Uh, as a machine learning company, I, uh, one of the really cool things for us would be, uh, and I think we're, we're probably only just one step away from this now, you know, we're, we're trying to become more and more serverless. Uh, but, but one of the things that you can't do right now is you cannot attach a GPU to a Lambda. Now, as I said, you know, a lot of the inference that we do, you can use a CPU to do the inference, but you can do uh, much quicker and more complicated model inference if you had a GPU. Uh, so I think for us, that would be a massive one. If we could attach a GPU to uh, to a Lambda, just like you can to an EC2 instance, then that that would be awesome. That would certainly be a game changer. I was talking to uh, Denise Bauer from the Australian, um, I guess, the research um the one that are research divisions, uh, they're they're doing a lot of uh, genome analysis on the COVID nineteen, uh, and uh, she was raising this, this exact same point that uh, you can put a lambda function with a ten gig of memory that gives you six CPU core, but that's nothing compared to if you can attach a GPU and that's going to give you a thousand cores and can do much more parallel processing. <laughs> You'll be in the orders of uh, magnitude difference uh, in terms of uh, performance. Um, yeah, that would be that would be pretty amazing once uh, you you can do that. Um, what's your second uh, wish list item? So my second item um, is, uh, this is a very niche one actually, and probably only, only people who've experienced this issue will have, uh, <laughs> will have encountered this. Um, basically, the, the way in which we think about, yeah, the, the way in which we think about event-driven computing and serverless and you know, SQS triggering lambdas, I think most people see that w- when a message appears on a queue is that there's almost like a push event and then it triggers a lambda. Whereas actually, from my understanding, it's not that way. It's that um, when a message reaches the end of the queue and triggers a lambda, it's actually that um, you know something in the background within AWS's infrastructure is polling the queue continuously to pull a message off. 
Now, whilst that works, uh, you know, in most scenarios, what you'll end up finding is that if, if in our use case, you are scaling from zero to a million documents very quickly, if you have zero messages in your queue, then uh, the polling mechanism ends up getting throttled. So then, um, you know, if we had a constant throughput of a million messages, um, you know, constantly coming through, it wouldn't be an issue in that, you know, it would be polling at the rate which would allow a million messages to come through. But then if you scale down to zero, then um, the, the polling very much slows down. So it does take some time to kind of catch up again. And then so you won't immediately see all those messages being ingested as fast as you'd like. So, yeah, it's quite a niche one. But, you know, if they could change that SQS polling to, to more of an event driven kind of architecture where actually it's a push rather than a pull. I'd be impressed by that. Yeah, that might be a tricky one for them to do because that's kind of depending on SQS and how it works. And SQS is a poll-based service. Um, so what, 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 like I said, what they've done is that they've got this uh, polling layer that uh, Lamb, the team, is managing. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's, it starts with five pollers uh, and then it scales up the number of pollers based on the number of messages in flight. So it actually monitors the number of messages that's in flight. And as that goes up, it increases the number of pollers by something like uh, uh, 60 per minute or something like that. But like I said, to hit the, the peak throughput, you need, uh, it takes some time to uh, actually get there. So maybe what they could do is give you more control over uh, how many pollers they run for you. I guess the downside, well, the problem for them in that case is that that whole layer or the whole polling layer is, is free. Uh, it's, you know, it's part of the, the sort of, I guess the, the, the value you get from Lambda. But, uh, if you, if you just say, I want a hundred pollers all the time, but there's no traffic like 99% of the time, then the, they are wasting resources that are not being actually utilized. So I kind of understand why they don't give you that control, but maybe it's something that they could do by giving you, you know, if you want to have a custom number of pollers, then the, uh, you have to pay extra, you know, sort of something like that, pay some hourly, uh, hourly rate, uh, because they have to spend more resources doing polling for you and not getting any messages. But at least that way you have some more control around uh, cases where, you know, for example, a lot of the sort of e-commerce uh, food delivery services or uh, live events uh, based services, they know when the spikes are going to come. And when they come, they're usually you know, pretty sharp. So you know, if we're having, having some kind of auto-scaling controls around that layer of uh, message polling uh, would be really useful. Okay, that's a really good one. Never actually really thought about that Um yeah, I've run into other issues around that whole polling thing because uh, it doesn't take into account the uh, reserve concurrency on your function. So even if you set your function to you know, just one instance <laughs> at a time, the poller will just still going to be polling at whatever whatever number of pollers that it decides to, to run based on the, the traffic going into your queue. So I actually had that the opposite problem of how to control uh, the exact amount of concurrency uh, I, I have in my function. And uh, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to sort of mention before we go? Uh, I think I've covered all the questions that I had. Uh, anything else that's coming up with uh, Amplify? Maybe something that you want to uh, tell the audience about, new projects, a new service that you're offering? Yes. Yeah, so um, within the next month now, we are releasing a new product called Deep Insight. And actually, it, it, um, it uses the platform that I've just been describing, actually, in this talk. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that. It's called Deep Insight. Okay, I'll make sure that I've added a link to that. Is, is there like an announcement blog post somewhere that I can link to? I can share a link with the website. That's no problem. Okay, cool. Sounds good. I'll do that. Uh, and, uh, and I'll also include links to your social media profiles as well as uh, to the uh, Amplify website. Are you guys uh, hiring by any chance? 
We are hiring, um, yes, we are hiring machine learning engineers right now, yeah. So if you are a machine learning engineer and you're interested in NLP, then yeah, please reach out to us. Excellent. Uh, I would include a link to your careers uh, page as well so that people can check it out. Uh, and again, Liam, again, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, cheers, Jan. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.